Um, the next session is on the um, tax amendments and the implications to DV schemes. Um, and Arthur's going to take us through those. Another regular presenter at the RMC conferences. Um, Arthur's been a pensions actuary and evaluator for many years and was part of the Actuarial Society task team that discussed these changes with National Treasury. He's also been a past chairman of the RMC, which is why hopefully he is a familiar face. Um, and very recently, um, the MD of the new Argen Actuarial Solutions. I alluded to them as our sponsors. Um, that's the merger of the old Arthur Else and Genesis businesses. But I'll hand over to Arthur. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, the, the, the Argen, the AR is Arthur Else and Associates, and the GN is Genesis. Actuarial Solutions, so <laughs> that's the other half role <laughs> in case they're feeling left out. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I want to talk about the changes to the Income Tax Act as it affects DB funds. Uh, we had our first draft come out in about June. The RMC met, uh, sent comments, Treasury looked at them and put through quite a few changes already. So the version that came out two weeks ago it's really got quite a few changes, a big improvement. We've got Christopher, there we are, Axelson from National Treasury sitting here listening. And now if any really difficult questions, we are asking. But it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I've got to put down, put page, page up. Which one? Of course, yeah, it's this one. Rowan. I'm going to switch this on, or do I just use this? Yeah, I think just use it. Ah, there we go. Okay, first, before I start, I've got to put a disclaimer in. The, the changes came through two weeks ago, 17th of July. I've been through them. What I put up is my personal interpretation. Certainly it's based on what, a, what the RMC had discussed before, but the final slides, final observations I put up on my own. So if there are any errors or any controversial statements, are they mine? I do take this opportunity. Being a presenter hasn't got many perks, but one perk it does have is you can put up things that, that uh, a committee would not put up. So there are one or two controversial recommendations, and hopefully Christopher will accept them, but if you get thrown out, I'll understand. So they are, it's my personal uh, view of uh, the changes. But there have been there's, there's some changes to the Income Tax Act that have nothing to do with DB funds. Chris and I were talking about it earlier. One really exciting one is a proposal that from March next year, a person who reaches retirement age doesn't have to draw the pension at that age. We can elect to leave it in the fund and uh, draw it at a later age. And that, I think, is tremendously beneficial. And so I'd just like to find out, can we have the first question? Find out from you, who of you are in favor of such a change? Uh, it's the change being to allow a person to elect to the when to retire rather than having to retire to retirement age. Can you just vote on that? It's much of what I expect. I'm not sure about the 8% who said no. I'm not quite sure. No, we won't. And the other thing, of course, is to get our pension fund client trustees to accept it because it does mean that there will be a deferred pension after retirement. But imagine a solution to that, and the expenses, a solution to that would be that the, the person who's deferred it bears their own admin costs. So I think that would be a good workable solution. Just give Christopher an indication of would we be able to get our pension fund clients, question two, would we be able to get our pension fund clients to be in favor of this? Okay, 70% yes and 30% no, but we need to really, I think it's a tremendous benefit, especially for somebody who reaches retirement age at a company and then goes on contract or goes and does some other sort of work. It allows that person to defer the tax on, on the third commutation decision of tax for another couple of years, build up the benefit and then take it. So well done, Christopher and the team at National Treasury. 
I think that's an excellent benefit. Right, let's continue. I've got to, I spent about 14 minutes talking about the changes to the Tax Act. What I first want to do is go through the proposals as I understand them. We've got questions, and if my understanding is incorrect, you can point it out later. And then my observations and comments on those proposals. I think I've got flaws in them. Uh, then we'll have a look at this contribution schedule, which is a schedule the evaluator has to prepare. It's quite a complicated exercise, and some observations on the schedule and some suggestions for changes, and then questions and comments, etc., uh, which Christopher can then take note of. He's, he's heavily involved in the actual legislation, so it's good to have him here. Right, the proposals. Looking at the latest version two weeks ago, First important point is you've got to break the membership down into what's called fund member categories. So if you've got different classes of benefits, you've got to do a certificate for each class. And members are in the same category if the same benefits apply to those members and the same rates of contribution apply. So if, they, if there's a group, same benefits, same contribution, member and employer, that's a fund member category. You group all those members together, you do the calculations. You need to calculate the value for each fund member category. So if your executives pay a high rate of contribution, they're going to be in their own category. First important point, you've got to break the membership down. The, the, this is the basic formula, the deemed value, the fringe benefit value. X is A times B minus C, where... X is the factor that you're going to calculate. This is a factor that you, the evaluator, need to calculate, provide to the board of trustees, we then provide it to the employer. So that's really the crux. And then the value is that factor times your income less the member contributions. And the answer is then what the employer is deemed to have contributed. So it makes sense. It's a factor times your salary that gives the value of the benefit for that year. Take off what the members contributed. The balance is then the employer contribution. That's your fundamental formula. Now, let's have a look at that factor A. In other words, the factor that we have to calculate. It's made up of four components. The, the factor says, first, there's a DB component. In other words, what's the value of the defined benefit? that the fund is providing, is it 40 years, 50 years, etc., or an underpin component. Now, if it's a pure DB fund, there'll be a DB component. If it's a DC fund with an underpin, you then work out the underpin component. And I've got examples which we'll go through. So a pure DB fund, the top one, a DC fund with an underpin DB, you do the second one, the underpin component. You then have a look at the death benefits that are provided, you place a value on them, and you place something called a DC component. Apparently, our DB funds have got DC elements. Uh, must be some sort of savings account. But if that's uh, part of the benefits, you add that on as well. So the important point is this factor that you're going to calculate has got four components. Let's have a look at each of the components. What's the first component? Remember, this is the first line. Well, there are a lot of A's and B's, but you're looking at the... The first component is A is your annuity accrual rate, 50ths, 40ths. B is another, is a prescribed factor. It's a value of the benefit. So it's your 40ths times your benefit. Remember, the, what the tax is based on, increase in the benefit over a year. So you see service doesn't come in because it's one year accrual. Now, that prescribed factor... There are lots of DB funds where you can retire before the normal retirement age without reduction. So, for example, we'll pick up an example. If, for example, if, if there's a fund, let's go up, if there's a fund where you can retire at age 60 with no reduction, the age at which you enter the table is you take 65, you look at the age where you can retire with no reduction, you take the average, 65, 60, 62 and a half, you round it up. Okay, so we'll come to that. That would be 63. Then there are some funds, particularly in municipal funds or government funds, where there's also a lump sum, a gratuity at retirement. You take the gratuity and you multiply by 0.8, full stop. Uh, it's uh, 0.8 prescribed. 
Right, so that's your, that's your DB element, a pure DB fund. It's your annuity accrual rate times the factor plus a lump, whatever the lump sum is, at times 0.8. That's the first component. Now, what are, uh, the first component, what are those factors? In other words, what does that be? Well, here's your table. It's been set out. Uh, it's a factor on the right-hand side. So, for example, that, that example we were looking at, a fund where you can retire from 60 with no reduction, we look at the factor at 63, and it would be 8,6. So if you had a fund with, with earlier time reduction right through to pension age, you would use the one at 65. Note that this table doesn't look at your, normal your fund's normal retirement age. If you normally retire at 63, this fund says, uh, this, this formula says, you look at the earliest age we can retire with no reduction, it would be 63, and 65, so you'd enter the table at 64. So it assumes a benefit. You've got to take 65 at the beginning, and then you work out the first part. Okay, so it doesn't use the actual normal, ret normal retirement age. It uses the age at which you can retire with no reduction. Here's an example of the DB component, the first line. Okay, there's our formula. Assume your fund's got a 50th. Assume the factor is 8,6. We're assuming that you can go from 60 okay, at, uh, at 8,6, which is table taken from table age 63. Assume we've got a lump sum, 6,7% of salary for each year of service. Multiply that by 0.8. If you take that, A times B plus C times D, you get 22,56. So it's quite a straightforward calculation. The prescribed ones are the B, the factor. And we'll have some observations on that. And the 0.8, those are prescribed. So others, your 40 years and your, your lump sum gratuity percentages are taken straight from the rules. Right, so that's the first part of our main formula. Let's have a look at the second part, the underpin. Now, this applies for a DC fund with a DB underpin. So you either use the one or the other. And this one assume, or the formula is, uh, your factor is A plus B times C. A is the bigger of your DC rate or your DB contribution rate. So we've got an example. B is 0.1, another prescribed factor. C is the minimum of the two. So what it's doing is saying, listen, you remember of a, DB, a DC fund, you've got a guarantee, you've got an underpin. What you're going to do is you're going to take the higher of your DB contribution rate and the DC contribution rate. We add on to that 10% of the lower figure. And National Treasury's view is that the member has an option against the fund. The option has a value. The value is taken as 10% of the difference in the contribution rates. So for me, let's have a look at an example. There's our formula. In the DC fund, the contribution rate is 15%. What's our DB rate? You've got to go back to the formula. So say yeah, this fund is 40 years. You take it, that factor from a table, 8,6 in our case, divide it by the 40 and get 21.5. So you calculate your DB rate using it. There's your DC rate, 15%. Your DB rate is 21.5. The principle is you take the higher one, 21.5. You add on 10% to the lower one. The lower one's 15, 10% of that's 1.5%. Add on to the 21.5, get 23. Okay, so you take the higher of the two, and you take 10% of the difference, you add it on to the higher. So that's your underpin. Now, if you're a DB fund, you'd use the previous 22.56. If you're a DC fund, you'd use 23. That's the first two lines of the formula. Now we come to the risk-benefit component factor. Treasury reckons that uh, you're entitled to benefits, not only retirement benefits, also death benefits. Therefore, you need to be taxed on the value because the employer is, you know, there is a value there. Simple A times B, where A is your average risk benefit factor. Now, this is, we note that word average. Average means you've got to go through the entire membership in that category Work out the death benefit for each one of them, add them all up, divide them a number of members, and that's your average benefit. And that's what we'd go in there. So this exercise involves a lot of calculation. You've got to get up-to-date data, accurate data, and do the calculations. And that's one of the observations I'll make in a minute. Okay, so it's the death benefit expressed as a multiple of salary. So five times salary, what's the equivalent? 
Uh, you've got to take the spouse's pension at each age, work out what the spouse would get had the member died there. If it includes potential service, allow for it. Express that as a multiple of salary. So at age 27, it could easily be 10. At age 62, it could be 3. That's the average, and you multiply that by 0.5%, which is a standard rule of thumb. Normally, a, a lump sum death benefit in a fund costs about a half percent of salary. Note that part in italics, you exclude DC benefits. So if it's a DC fund, we have the fund credit out, it gets excluded. You also exclude disability benefits. Risk benefits applies only to death benefits. Exclude disability. I'm not quite sure why. There's, there's some reason some reason given in the explanatory note. Uh, not sure. But it includes spouses and dependents benefits. So you've got to be children's pensions. You're going to have to make assumptions about number of children, the age, how long it's going to be paid. Quite complicated. But having done all that, you express a multiple of salary multiplied by 5%. Here's an example. Say you've done all the calculations, the average benefit is five times annual salary, you multiply by a half percent, your risk benefit is two and a half percent. That's the third line. Then we got defined contribution. I got a feeling. No, that's right. Uh, that's, I think I missed the slide. Risk benefit component. Defined, uh, yeah, yeah. Defined benefit This is a defined contribution component. I couldn't think of none of my funds have got an extra benefit. None of my DB funds get extra benefit, but apparently there are. The note says there are many funds, many DB funds have a defined contribution component. But you just add it on. So A is the value of that. Maybe employers paying an extra 2% for medical aid subsidy or something. You'd add that on. Okay, no example given, and it's, I don't think it's a common feature. It says a many, uh, but in the question time, if you are, you can just point out a few. Okay, so let's go back to now our main factor. We've done all these calculations. What would the main factor be, right? So DB component, we've taken 22,56, calculated as it was. Underpin, I'm assuming a pure DB fund, no DC, so not applicable. 2.5% for our risk component factor. I've added nothing for the null. So 25,06% is the value of the total contribution. You would then, uh, let's see, he this, then you go back to the calculation for tax purposes. This is what the employer would be doing. Deemed value, you know, that's our very first formula. If the A is the FMC factor, which is 25,06, we just worked it out. Ret say the retirement funding income of this member is 100,000. Say the members' contributions over the year were 8,000 rand. 25,06 times 100,000 less 8,000 gives you 17. <coughs> that is the deemed value for tax purposes of the employer's part of the benefit cost. Now, you see, it's very little to do with the fund itself, uh, but that's the value. Uh, are there, does that make Well, I want to ask questions. But that's the, you see, it's quite straightforward, but the underlying that is deceptively straightforward. Underlying that is a lot of work. Now, my observations on those proposals, that's, uh, those are the proposals as I understand them. And I think I'm probably right in most counts. I think the tax values are high. I think the values produced by that formula are too high. And I'll tell you why. This is taken from explanatory memo. The intention of the fact is that FMC is to approximately reflect some estimate of the long-run cost. There's no intention of, in express, of finding a realistic value for your fund. SARS have taken, well, National Treasury have taken a view. There's so many funds, there's so many benefits. We want to get an estimate. We're going to plop across the board, and that's it. So what I've done is I've calculated that. And therefore, the, the actual value for tax will be very different to what you and I calculate in our valuations. I think it's generally too high, and I'll tell you why. I've taken the PMBs for three of our clients, and I've compared them. Now, I haven't, haven't got the data for the clients. I haven't done the actual averages, and I've just used a, an assumption, but I think I'm not too far out. Here's a fund that provides a pension and a lump sum. And we've calculated the PMBs. Those who don't know what PMBs are. PMBs is the pension fund actuaries and the member leaves a fund. 
that person will get at least a certain amount, the prescribed minimum benefit. So what I've done is I've calculated, on the assumption this person had been in a fund for a year, what the Pension Fund Act values the benefit as. So, for example, at age 30, Pension Fund Act says that member's uh, year's pension is worth 16,000 rand. Had he been age 60, it would be 32,000. Normally, this is your resignation benefit. Now, estimate a fringe benefit fund for this fund, which provides a lump sum and a pension. It's 30,500. You can see that's at the top end of the scale. Our National Treasury have argued before, but PMBs don't allow for risk benefits. The argument against that is that the PMBs don't have any decrements, so they indirectly do allow for risk benefits. So therefore, we think that PMBs are a good, good, good indication of an actual value. So certainly fund one, which provides both, you see the taxable value is at the upper end. I think it's too high. Now I've taken another fund that's got very poor risk benefits, and you can see the values are lower because there's very little. The, in fact, the pension fraction is lower. This fund has got low risk benefits, so the risk component would be low. We still get a factor of 22,000, still at the upper end. And then take another fund. This is a closed fund with a few members, high average age. Benefits are lower, that's why the PMBs are low. But even in that case, 21,000. So you can see the, the taxable value is pretty close to the top end of what the Pension Fund Act deems to be a reasonable value. So we're we send, sending back the message, or I'm sending back the message, and I'm sure the RMC would agree with me. We think your assumptions are incorrect. Come back. Second observation, very insufficient transparency. And uh, this is telling here's the explanatory memo. The table, that's that table effect, has been calculated, taking into account the following fact, taking the following factors in consideration, Average expected levels of post-retirement mortality. Average expected salary weight, salary weighted levels of pre-retirement mortality. And they see no, no specifics. Average. This is a good one. Expected investment returns. Pre- and post-retirement on a portfolio of assets whose term, nature, and security broadly matches the lump sum and annuity liabilities promised by the DB funds. That includes your pension increase. So they've taken an average, and I'll come back in a sec, the average level of spouse's benefits, the price of annuities available in the private market. Now, I have two problems with this. First one is those expected returns. What rate of discount is used? What allowance for pension increase is given? And the price of annuities in the private market. Just bear those two in mind. I'll come back to them in a sec. And my other observation, the underlying methodology to calculate the factors is very vague. That's what you're given. The factors are based on these averages. No specifics. So you, you can't have an informed debate. And then some prescribed values, example at comma 8 for the lump sum benefits and a comma 1 for the option, appear to be now, maybe it's not arbitrarily, but it's, it's calculated in something, but to apply it at all ages from 50 through, 55 through to 65 appears to me uh, no, not the way to go. So those are my observations on the the transparency, you can't question. That's given. Here it is. We based it on the following. Then my observation three is the assumptions themselves, I think, are questionable. Questionable. From our discussion with National Treasury and some feedback, we know what some of the assumptions are. The first point that's made clearly, I never realized it, more than 99% of DB members in South Africa belong to the GPF. You and I cover less than 1% of all DB members. These tax formulas are going to apply to the GPF. As far as National Treasury is concerned, it makes in a whole lot of sense to look at the GPF and to base the tables on the GPF assumptions. But they're probably not valid in the private sector. And one we really questioned was the allowance for future salary increases. Now, we were told that the difference between salary increases and investment return is very small. In other words, with, uh, the, any public sector employees, you can look forward to a bright future. Salary increase is going to be way above inflation, according to this. In the private sector, particularly at older ages, which most DB funds are, salary increases are pretty close to inflation. 
I'll be very surprised with many funds here where people can expect way above inflation. So we questioned the assumption and said, but to value a private sector fund, you need a bigger gap. And the answer given was, well, the GPF is over 99%. But uh, Treasury do listen, uh, so hopefully they're listening to that one. So I think if we make the discount gap bigger, the values will come down, which they should come down. And then what's the allowance for future self-pension increases? In the private sector, there's tremendous range. Some pension funds have taken out inflation-linked bonds and give inflation. Others are invested in balanced funds. Others give very low increases. We don't know. And now at this point I make, what is the last future pension? Easy equity risk premium taken into account. They don't want an investment return. Says we've taken into account in portfolio, etc., etc. Et if the equity risk premium is not taken into account, then the pension increase should be based on risk-free returns. shouldn't be based on something which includes an equity risk premium. In other words, you can't allow for risky investment returns in building up your liabilities, yet discount them as if the assets were invested in fixed interest. You get too high an answer. You need consistency there. But, so that's, that, I think, is a very important assumption. Uh, that's one of the reasons it's too high. Another one is, you saw, I, I outlined that uh, last line. It's all based on annuity prices obtained in the market. They're based on annuity prices in the insured market rather than within funds. So what National Treasury have done, they've approached our mutual son and whatever he says, okay, to provide a pension of this, with the full inflation, what would you charge us? Our mutual come back or whoever's come back and say, we charge you 20 rand per, one rand a pension per annum. And I'm saying the pension actually, wow, now I can produce one rand per annum with inflation with 12 rand, 13 rand, depends on the assets. So the insurers are subject to capital requirements. Sam, Sam forces insurers to be very careful about how they invest the assets. It's expense loadings, it's profit loadings, commission, very important. The insurers invest conservatively. They've got shareholders, they've got capital requirements. So the pension assets are invested conservatively. And therefore, to provide a pension with full inflation from an insurer is going to cost a fortune, a lot more than a fund. Uh, so it's much more than if a fund provided itself with a balanced portfolio. So hence the tax results are inflated, in my view, versus the actual cost. One should look at what a typical DB fund got its pensioners, as a balanced portfolio, suitable for pensioners, needs in order to provide that pension, not what is an insurer need to provide the pension. I think that's one of the reasons that the figures are too high. The risk costs are inflated, in my view. Now, I don't know. You'll notice that the risk-benefit component is based on the full death benefit. You go and you look, Mr. X dies today, it's a benefit, Mrs. Y, etc., all members. Add and express a multi add them up, express a multiple salary, and you multiply it by 0.5%. But on the death of a member of a DB fund, your actuarial reserve is released. You don't pay it out. So the cost to the fund of the death benefit is the top-up. And I don't know how the discount factors have been valued. I don't know what decrements they've got in. We don't. We aren't told. But I I suspect that the risk benefit has been valued as if it's in a DC fund where you pay out the credit plus you pay out three times salary. Allowance has to be made for the reserve which remains in the fund. And that will reduce that 2.5% quite a lot. Has it been allowed for the calculations? Uh, we can't tell. Small funds, most, I mean, we've, we've got a couple of open DB funds, but most funds are closed, DB funds, getting smaller and they have, have a small membership, the tax proposals make no allowance for the size of a fund. And that was something RMC had suggested earlier. If a fund is below a certain size, below a certain membership, give us something. Currently, even a one-person fund needs to have the actuary to do the calculations to produce the certificates, etc., you can imagine the expense cost in relation to contributions. So allowance needs to be made for small funds to 
to avoid excessive costs. And I think, to be fair to Treasury, we only made the, the proposal two weeks before the latest one came out. So I think that will come in. But there's no allowance at the moment. Okay, that's all I have to say on the actual proposals. Uh, turning now to the contribution certificate. This certificate now, it's this, we heard earlier on about from the adjudicator by members complaining about investment returns not being what they should be, etc. I can tell you, I know, when we produce the certificate, and that member over there has to pay tax on contributions valued on figures I've produced. Nobody likes paying tax. Our figures are going to be investigated to a great depth. Particularly, remember, people do like to be affected by the higher earners. And they're the ones who have the money to call a lawyer or another actuary in to look at it. But the point I'm trying to make is when we do the contribution certificates, we need to be very careful that we do a thorough, in-depth job. Uh, yeah, let's really, I'm running ahead of myself. Contribution certificates to be provided by the board to the employer. Remember, the, the effect of these tax changes has got very little, it's very little effect on the funds themselves. The administrator has to do nothing. The trustees have to do nothing except provide the certificate. The onus goes to the employer. The employer receives the certificate. And it says for your fund, the deemed tax value is 32.5%. The employer will then put that into the payroll system and show that as a fringe benefit. You'll take the member contribution. Show that as a fringe, that figure. End of the tax year, my understanding is SARS will then add up all these figures, add up any RAs, uh, add up any RAs, and then, and then also, and then compare it to the maximum, which is based on remuneration, including this. So SARS will do the calculation. And several months after tax year, tax year ends, the member will get a notification from SARS, you owe us 20000 or whatever the figure is. I don't like bank tax. That actually made a mistake. I'm sure he has. Let me see his figure. Let's be careful when you do those calculations. Do it. And that's my message to National Treasury, that this isn't an exercise that you can just back of this, back of the, we don't speak cigarette box, back of the, whatever it is now. You can't just do that and give it. It needs to be done properly, not only for our, for our sakes, but for the member's sake. The member doesn't pay too much tax or too little tax. We need to do it properly. So it's a big exercise. Right, the contribution certificate to be provided by the board. So the actuary will do it, goes to the board, the board then looks at it. It's signed by four stakeholders. If something goes wrong, these four, the evaluator signs it. Two trustees sign the certificate. The PO signs a certificate before it goes. There's a separate certificate for each fund member category. Now, the, the, the proposed legislation says there's a certificate issued initially, and it's updated at each triennial actuarial evaluation, or when a benefit's change. Be careful of benefit's changing. I, I, don't, I know very few DB funds with benefits change. But if a benefit does change, you need a revised contribution certificate. I think it's in a month after the benefit change. So if you're going to have benefit changes, make sure they're going to weigh in the future so you can do all the calculations and produce your certificate. And the fund sends a certificate to employer at least one month before the start of the tax year to give the employer time to implement this in the, in the payroll system. Now, this is, this is something I was a bit confused. The explanatory memorandum says the first certificate must be issued by 31 December 2014. But if you look at the actual wording of the Act, it says a, a month, at least a month before the tax year, which would make it 31 January 2015. So I think Treasury will get rid of that. But it looks like the first one, I think, will need to be done by the end of December to give the employer two months this is a whole new thing. You're going to have teething problems. Uh, but at the moment, there is a bit of confusion there. What's in the certificate? Okay, the year of assessment. In other words, one issue in December will apply from 1 March next year until it's replaced. The fund details, which fund it is, etc., can be identified. Employer details, 
due to his employer. The benefits, in other words, what benefits have we taken into account in those four components and their rule numbers. A breakdown of that factor into what you've calculated, DB, underpin, risk, and DC components. This is a factor, that's it. And why do we need all that? SARS will be checking up on you. SARS <laughs> yes. made it quite clear. Uh, um, the, the view of Treasury and SARS is that there are some dishonest people around. Therefore, there needs to be checks and balances in place, which one can understand. That's why all that information is given. The, the, the breakdown, the employer will use E, which will be the, the factor, and multiply that by the salaries. So SARS will do. They, they probably won't audit everyone every year, but yours will get a look at some stage. And, of course, the members who are unhappy about paying tax will also have a look at that. Okay, got a couple of observations on the certificate itself. I think it needs adjustment for private sector funds. It says, the, the Act itself says it be issued. It must be revised when at the triennial valuation or when benefits change. But there aren't, most of our funds are DB funds which are closed. As you get people retiring, your averages change. You get a group retiring, your averages could change from year to year. So I think it needs to be provision for this certificate to be changed yearly if, if necessary, change more frequently than just every three years. So if there's a movement in a fund or a, a number gets smaller, we can actually recalculate those averages. Yes, averages can change, and we need to revise the certificate more. Now, even more expenses. And now this is my personal view, so this RMC, you dissociated from it. Uh, the contributions has to be prepared by the fund action approved by the trustees. As I say, given the sensitivity of tax matters, the actuary and the board, remember the trustees are also on the hook here, need to do a comprehensive and in-depth in -depth exercise to determine the correct FMC factor. If it's too low, size will come down. If it's too high, members will come down. And we have a duty, a duty to the public to make sure it's right. So you're going to have to do this properly. Call for data, do the averaging, so that if anybody questions you, why have you used that figure? Why did you take an average of 6.25 years salary as a risk benefit? There's the data. So it's not a cheap exercise. It will incur funds in further expenses, and I think they can be substantial. For a small fund that you have to do these investigations, particularly initially, we're all finding our feet, we've got a call for data, etc. And yet the same National Treasury is incurring these costs is on a drive to reduce fund expenses. That so seems quite ironical that you're causing funds to incur more expenses, and yet at the same time scolding them for uh, being too expensive. Now, this is my personal view. It's my last. I think my last, one of my last slides. Personal view. Okay, and I hope Treasury takes note of it. Taxes paid in contributions exceed the maxima. That's, that's the intention. If you exceed 350,000 or the 27.5%, remember it's not of your pension salary, it's 27.5% of gross salary plus the contributions. It's likely to affect, it's going to affect relatively few members and the amounts are not going to be great. In fact, I would imagine a GPF with its million members, I would be surprised if there are more than 100 members that are affected by this. And the amounts, remember they the amounts above 350,000, etc., are relatively small in the big picture. And in addition, this taxable amount is then added on to the benefit to the tax-free benefits. So it's taking year, but it's giving back when the person leaves the fund. So in my view, it's much of a zero-sum game. All that SARS is doing is getting the tax earlier, but it's forfeiting tax later. Now, it might not be exactly a zero-sum game, but I'm pretty, pretty sure that uh, there's not big figures involved in this. So my question is, does this fringe benefit tax add any value to society over the longer term that offsets the costs 
which funds now have to incur. It's a zero-sum game, yet funds are having to pay these expenses. I very much doubt it. I think, in fact, this is an exercise that's going to just be negative all around. And therefore, my controversial proposal, I suggest that SARS abandons this exercise at this stage. <laughs> because I think we're going to look back one day and say, you know, there's a lot of... It's, it's much the same as a state duty. A state duty brings in very little revenue, yet incurs tremendous costs. And I think the same here. And uh, I'd like to just ask two questions so we can get a feeling from the audience. Can we just get the third question, please? Okay, do you think that taxing excess contributions adds any value to society? Is your view that this thing adds any value to society? Let's have your gut feel. You can vote. <laughs> I'd like to do those 22%. Can you please come up? <laughs> what sort of value you think is added? Okay, and then the last question, the last slide is, would you recommend that it be scrapped? So we can send back a message to Treasury from Actuarial Society. Now that's much better. I see of the 22%, 5% have changed their mind. But that, that really is my gut feel. It's, it's my personal view. It's not the RMC. But I really think that we're on to uh, a, a net loss Situation, curing a lot of work. Right, and I think that is the end of my presentation. Are there any questions? Oh, there's a question there. Thank you. We got Christopher there. If any questions, Christopher. <laughs> Hi, Arthur. Thanks for the presentation. Um, I think. Well, just discussing it with the people around me, I think you need to clarify that the same fringe benefit tax provisions will apply to DC funds, and it's not only for DB funds. I think the subject um, is perhaps a bit misleading. Um, on your particular questions that you asked, though, I think we need to see this in the broader perspective of pension reform, where I think National Treasury is trying to avoid the situation where the wealthy are saving for retirement at the cost of the fiscus, and it's savings they would have made anyway. Um, so that's just a comment that I have. I do have a particular question, though, for the life insurance industry, and I think maybe the pension funds adjudicator should sit up because she's going to get a lot of complaints on this. So we're, we're introducing, or SARS are introducing a cap on contributions of 350,000 um, or 27.5% of your taxable um, income, if that's the lower number, which means that in, in my perspective, certainly, that there are, and, and having been a trustee of one of the largest RA funds in the industry, I think I've got, a, I've got a bit of a sense of the data, that there are a lot of people who would previously have contributed to an RA fund as top-up retirement savings just because of the tax incentivization, who are no longer going to be motivated by that tax incentive and who, in fact, are going to sit back and realize that traditional RA products are in fact, very ineffective as a method of saving, and they're going to want to make them paid up. And, I mean, how has the life insurance industry actuaries engaged with a subject with National Treasury, um, and how is the industry preparing for it? Because certainly when I make my RAs paid up, I am going to complain to the adjudicator when I get a big penalty on it. Thanks. That is a super question. First point about... Uh, Fiscus is trying to make sure the wealthy don't get away. Remember, this is you paying tax now. Say you are a wealthy one and you're affected by 350,000. Notice line three says, a line one says you do pay the tax. That's true, but line two says you get it back when you retire. So there's no saving to fiscus. All fiscus is doing getting your money earlier, but giving it back at retirement. So it's it's a net sum, a zero sum game. So I don't think fiscus. If they've taken away that, say anybody's going to pay, anybody can do more than 350, we will tax it and we'll give no benefit at retirement. Then I say, well, there's a positive view for SARS, but they're giving it back. So it's just a timing difference. The other one, RA, is very interesting. We've, I think what this is going to do, this is going to change a life insurance 
Mike, where are you at problems with RAs? Where's Mike? And they adjudicated with RAs. I think this is going to solve your problem. What we do, our, our recommendation to our clients is that when this comes in next year, is that, remember the 350,000 27.5 applies to all retirement funding. It's whether it's pension fund, it's RAs, it's in it. It makes sense, and I mean, I'm going to do it. Instead of putting an RA with an RA provider and paying whatever the expenses of the insurance company, I'm going to take my RA money and put it in the pension fund. I'll pay the tax up front, but I will get good investment returns. I'll get uh, all the savings uh, that a pension fund offers. I'll get a good investment committee. I don't, if I want to change or change jobs, it goes with me. And now with a change, I can leave it there after retirement. I will be making substantial savings by taking that RA money and sticking in the pension fund and paying the tax up front. So I can see a lot of people using this instead of RAs. So I think it's going to be a big change. Now, does that answer your two questions? Uh, life insurance, actually, you don't need to worry about RAs. I think they're going to sort them. So the RAs, all these penalties and you can't take your money, etc. Bring it to your local pension fund and the problems are solved. At the invitation. Uh, sorry. The question there. Uh, Arthur Johan. Johan, yeah. I just want to find out, did, does the new, or did the new um, version not refer to the, the, the pension increase policy anymore? It's only one table. Because I haven't seen it, but I said, didn't see you commenting on, on that. So you don't look at the pension increase policy anymore for that one factor. Is that correct? That's quite right. In fact, if we just go back to that table, that was one of the changes that... I'm sure there's a quick way. There we are. No, let's just get to that. Oh, no. Observations. Just want to get to it. Jan's made a very valid point. Initially, oh, I didn't realize I had so much to say. Uh, <laughs> there we are. There we back. Initially, the, the version that came out in the middle of June had not just one table. I think it were ten ten, ten uh, columns to that table. And what it did initially said, you look at the pension increase that your fund granted over the last five years as a percent of CPI. And you apply the table. And this, this column that's left is a 75% CPI table. But there were columns below it, down to 50%, which had lower factors. And they went up to 200%, where the factors were about 14 doublers. And it said that you needed to look at what your fund had granted and apply the table. And the RMC went back and said, but that doesn't make sense because increase over the last five years might have surplus. The markets have done well. Who says they're going to do the same in the future? How can you penalize members, a member now, because pension has got a good increase? And uh, one of the big drawbacks, of course, is if I'm a trustee and I see, wow, you know, we gave – if I give a big pension increase at this table, apply, I'm going to pay tax on my contribution. So, so Treasury have very sensibly listened to that, and we're grateful for them. And so now I think that they're using a risk-free rate, but they still, this table is a 75%. It, it was headed before 75%, but I think the factors are still wrong. I think it's, the discounting should be greater. But there's only one yarn, uh, which has been reduced tremendously. Um, and then, sorry, I just, I just got three points. The other one is the, the the basis for the spouses and children pension calculation. Obviously, as I understand, there's no prescription in that. So the way that you calculate those is then up to the actuary. Is that so? Because I would have imagined that once you for this kind of calculations, that it should be then prescribed in some way how you do that calculation. So there's consistency between evaluators and, 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 and factors that's being applied because we're talking to the tax that the member will be paying. And I didn't see you commenting on that specifically. You, you say the whole, the whole method should be prescribed rather than... Oh, the, basis, the basis to calculate the value of the spouse's pension and the children's pension. Oh, you say that... You're right. There should be a factor to be consistent with the rest of the prescribed ones. It hasn't been, but we'll have to make a note of that in our comments back. But you're right. It should be as well. Everything's, yeah, but I, I, I haven't mentioned that. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. I mean, the mortality needs to be prescribed if, if the point eight is prescribed. Yeah. And then just the last issue, the, within the, the, the latest draft, 
when you're supposed to do the calculation, do you do it on the evaluation date? Do you do it on the date you do the in December? Do you need to get data in December? I mean, what's your interpretation? When do you? For us, is now. I mean, December is not is, is a few months away. We must now start doing these things. And are we supposed to use? Is there any which data are we supposed to use to do for that first first set that's due at the end of this year? Do you? What's your, what's your understanding there? I'm afraid I need to pass it over to Christopher. Christopher, can you give us an idea that what date? Is there a specific date that should be done as at? If you can just pass the roving mic there, please. Um, hi, I've got a few other comments. Does he want to finish first? and then? Yes, you can do them all. No, no, that's, that's all I had. Just the last one. Thanks, um, thanks for your uh, contributions, uh, Arthur. That was very useful. I mean, on the date, we haven't actually... Uh, finalize that. So, I mean, if you put it in your comments, we can then be more prescriptive on that. Um, but we haven't actually put anything in at the moment. I mean, there are a couple other things. Just your... Yeah, in, in that regard, I think, Arthur, the, the most practical would be, because I see you reply, uh, the expectation is that you will do these factors in, at each triannual valuation that will then apply for the next three years, except if you change benefits, then most practical would be your last statutory valuation. I would imagine that you do it with... I'll, if, just as long as it's within the last three years, so you don't have to go and run around and do other other calculations. Okay. Uh, that makes sense, yes. Um, thanks. I mean, I just wanted to make a point on the um, putting it forward that your client should then put all the money in. I mean, the, the legislation does say that the excess contribution will not be taxed on the way out, but that doesn't include the growth on the excess contribution. So you would still pay tax on that growth. I mean, I think, thanks very much for your comments. We'll take them in. Um, we really have gone through, it's quite a difficult amendment, this, which is why your comments have been valuable. Uh, we really have tried to go for the, you know, because it's so difficult and every individual is so difficult and every fund is difficult, we have gone for a very simple uh, way of doing this, even though there's a lot of complexity um, underneath. And as you say, a lot of people won't face additional tax charges um, because you do it is up to that tax deductibility limit of 27.5%. Um, but if anybody would like to comment, please can you comment um, by 17th of August, because uh, the comment period is still open, and we'd really enjoy getting your views and your thoughts, and we'll try and take them into account. Uh, you can find all the amendments and where to comment on the National Treasury website. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I must admit, it's not an easy job for National Treasury trying to balance all these things, so one can understand, one can sympathize, but I do think we do have some valid comments. Are there, I think we've got time for two more questions. Thank you. Um, it's actually a, a comment, just thinking about um, simplifying the work, because you said some of the difficulties of the work will be that there are a few items where you have to get exact data, and then it's going to make it much more difficult than just applying a generic formula. And I wonder if there could be a shortcut where you apply a maximum number based on what the possible maximum could be in the fund. And if nobody is hit under that number, then you just stop at that point and you don't do the exact calculation. So you might be able to streamline it a bit to make it faster. Yeah, like a sampling basis, yes. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Um, I was told to come up here if I was the 8%, the 22%, or the 17%, so here I am. Um, I think the one thing we just need to remember is pe we're, we're trying to convince people to, to save over and above their institutional arrangements or save within those, which I think is right. So, you know, Fakhmida, the 350, the danger of the maximum is that we tell high net with individuals that's all that, they, that it is that they need to save. Um, and we need to create some sort of measure so that people can, can then sort of top up their savings. Uh, the reason I wasn't so keen on um, a flexible retirement age, Arthur, was that, one, I haven't seen pension actuaries properly price anti-selection in terms of longevity. And two, you're much better off transferring to a pres fund where you can take your lump sum when it makes sense, but you've got a 10% draw, and in the new world, at the younger retirement ages, you're probably going to be capped on your draw less than the 10%. So you've probably got more flexibility. But I'm boring you with technical stuff, and so I'll leave that to Tommy. Uh, he's going to give you the final feedback from the RMC committee. Um, he did send me a CV, which was filled with other sort of boring facts, but he did 
drop a comment that he's completed 10.77 comrades marathons. So I'd asked him if that was 11 attempts or 13 attempts. The good news is he's only failed once, um, but he'll finish off. And then just on a closing note, um, an email questionnaire has been sent to everyone um, for feedback on the session. So when you get back to the office or after you've finished a couple of glasses of wine and you're probably in a better mood, please complete those. Thanks. Um, thanks, Rowan. Uh, I can bore you with many different things, but I won't be technical, so I promise you that. I'm just going to briefly um, end off the session with a, a feedback from the actions of the Retirement Matters Committee. Now, Arthur, in his last session, had a visual or a very um, uh, recent example of what we are doing um, in terms of interaction with regulators and giving feedback to try and um, help with setting good and effective regulation out there. Um, so I'm just going to go through the different subcommittees that is active in the um, actual society's retirement matters committee um, and then end off with a thanks to them and then uh, go to just finishing off and thanking the organizers and everybody involved with the, with the uh, conference. So um, RMC, I think in the years that I've been involved this year has been the most active one in terms of giving, having to give feedback some, often on short notice. Um, we've had all the Treasury's um, retirement reform, then we've had valuation exemptions, we've got the DB tax, uh, IS-19. There's a number of things that we are involved in, and the committee has worked very hard, and I want to give them, just uh, thank them for that. Um, going through the different subcommittees, uh, we organized in five uh, subcommittees within the Retirement Matters Committee. First one, talking briefly about education, um, looking at core reading and education matters. The education board is responsible for education, um, but we're looking at the relevance for the pension, um, pension fund area. Um, at the moment, there is a review of the syllabus that is in progress, so we're looking at making it more relevant. Uh, there were some comments on making it more relevant for defined contribution funds and the actions involved there. Um, so that's, that's underway. We've done some work in the last year as well in bringing in a lot of the Australian syllabus. Um, so that will um, continue throughout the year and going into next year. Um, we've also seen that very few people are sitting the pension fund exams, <laughs> which is a bit frustrating because a lot of work goes into preparing the the syllabus, the core reading, and then few people sitting the exams. So I've got a question that I just want to ask to the students sitting the ex sitting exams, um, and maybe to actuaries that are advising students as to what they should write, because we've got a uh, yeah we want to just understand is there a problem with with the pension fund syllabus or is there other matters involved? So just want to get my question there. Um, basically, you should see you know um, yeah are you why are, people, are you due to do intend writing the, the, the pension fund exam? Now, again, I don't want this um, cluttered by people voicing what they think, so I want to focus this on students or people involved with the exams directly. Do you think the, are you happy with the pension fund exam? Do you think the syllabus is out of date and needs to be corrected? Is it the, um, uh, the, is the exams too difficult? Are the pass rates been too low? Are you not working in that area? If you could quickly just uh, vote on that, I would appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually true. It's one that I intended putting up but forgot to put it in. If, if you could, well, sort of see the voting there. It's just something for us to take back. So thanks for that. Um, it's. We've been asked that question and we don't know what, what the answer is, so we'll take whatever is there and see if we can give some, some feedback there. So on the education, thank you for the education subcommittee doing work on that and also for the people at the universities um, doing work on the pension side. Um, one of the committee that's been the most active is the PGN the, and the guidance and the legislation subcommittee. Natasha is heading that. Um, like I said, pensions reform has been an, an active area. We've had a number of comments on the various papers submitted by Treasury. Uh, valuation exemption, we've had some uh, a number of feedback sessions on that. Um, tax undefined benefits that also have been in, uh, giving you some feedback on. We've had two meetings, I think, with the Treasury as well on that. 
Um, and on the accounting standards, there's a meeting tomorrow between some actuarial society members and people from the accounting profession to try and see if we can clear up the um, areas of confusion or where we think it's not clear in terms of the accounting standards and our actuaries interpret that. So as we get that feedback, um, we will set up a sessional meeting probably later in the year to give you, to pass that on to you. But yeah, I want to say thank you to effectively the whole Retirement Matters Committee for hard work in the, in the, on the legislation side. Um, Sean Nettling looks at the practicing certificate with a few of his committee members. So we're looking at practicing certificate issues there. Um, we issue those certificates to get valuators compliant and have them um, approved by the FSB as valuators. Now, the one comment that I have there is that you know, DB funds are declining, and we're seeing that many actuaries have maybe one DB fund, and there's a requirement to have at least two DB funds in the last, I think, four years' um, experience in those funds. So at the moment, we, we are continuously looking at whether that is still relevant and practical, but we can't just say one DB fund is sufficient. You know, you need to show adequate experience in defined benefit funds um, to the, so that we as an actual society can convince the regulator that our members are sufficiently experienced to do, do the work. So at the moment, our comment is, if you've only got one fund, please make work early enough so that you get exposure to another fund or more through colleagues, it can be a formal peer review or some sort of work that you can demonstrate exposure to more than one defined benefit fund. So that's sort of the one important comment that I want to leave to you to not leave too late. So thanks for the subcommittee working on that. Uh, last one, Costa and his subcommittee looking at sessional meetings and also at the organization of this conference. Um, I think we've done well in terms of looking at a number of uh, different topics uh, throughout the year, but I want your feedback, please, that we can build into our planning, you know, in terms of do we have enough meetings and is the topics relevant enough? So I've got a few questions there. If you could please all just respond on that, we'll take that back uh, to us um, as guidance for our future, future work. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, I appreciate the feedback there. Um, it looks like most people think we're doing enough. We, we like to try to do as much as possible. And I think the more actions there are and movement there are in the industry, like at the moment, we'll try and have enough sessions to keep you updated and to keep those valuable CPD points um, up to the right levels. So thank you. Um, I just want to think back on the day, the, the, like all of these conferences, after the conference we go back with more work than, than, we, than we really have time for. And I think the two big takeaways for us, firstly, Rosemary made some comments um, which I find very comforting, and I think us as a profession should take that positively in the sense that she sees the actuaries as supporting the, um, the regulator in having pension funds run on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a good financial basis. And if we go to a, an area where all, the, all funds will be valuation exempt, you know, there is an obligation, I think, on us to say, how can this be dealt with efficiently? Um, it's good to place the onus on us to help with the, with the sort of the supervision, but it's not just for us to make to get more fees and have more um, fish in the net and maybe have more students stay in the pensions field. But um, I think we should also look at ways that we can see how the system can run more efficiently. You know, if, if pension funds are bogged down by Section 14 transfer because a valuation is outstanding, it doesn't help anybody. So um, we will continue to give feedback um, on, on how we think we can do that in an in a, in a efficient manner. So that's the one. And the other one, I think, was uh, on financial soundness um, on defined contribution funds. How is that defined? Do we need guidance on that? So we'll take that and, and consider that, discuss it, and come back to you, to come back to you with it. Okay, that's what I've got. And the last thing, a pleasure for me to just say thank you to every single member of the Retirement Matters Committee for hard work done in the year. Now, I'm not going to put down their names, but I'm going to put them on the spot a bit for two reasons. And the one is so that you can see who is the representatives um, in the different companies. 
If you've got questions and feedback, you can work through them. Um, but I also just want to, you to give a hand to the members of the Retirement Fund Committee, so ask them to stand and uh, for you just to thank them in, in that way. So thanks, guys. Take a bow. <laughs> It's hard work, often thankless, and at late hours of the night. So I thank every one of you for hard work during the year. Um, I also, just a few quick thanks. The regulator, you know, we often grumble at the extra regulation and the work that we get through it, but it's, it's partly helping to help us have a sustainable and solid industry. So I just want to thank the FSB and the Treasury for their ability to, to their willingness to interact with us, for the hard work that they're doing on their side. Um, also, the, our industry partners, you know, the, tomorrow meeting with the auditors, you know, we meeting with lawyers and um, administrators. So all the, all the feedback and the interaction there is very valuable, and we as the actuaries and from pensions want to thank them. Um, and then it's my pleasure to just go on to thanking everybody involved in this, this conference. Um, firstly, the speakers, and I went through the list quickly. I think um, Lizzie started us off with uh, just getting our conscience going and thinking us about what we should do. And I think it's very important for us as actuaries, more left brain, to think where our advice ends up um, in terms of treating customers fairly. Rosemary, I think, um, I think was a very positive discussion. Also bring down to us the responsibility of us as actuaries in the profession. Um, John and Kelsey, I think, thank you for getting some right brain activity going, and I hope that will be more, there'll be more creative solutions being brought by actuaries to the pension funds area. Um, Gert and, and Pierre, you know, you made us think a bit more of the legal side, which uh, I know makes us uncomfortable because it's outside of our um, comfort zone, um, but I think the message brought was one that we should take on board and, and, and think about now that impacts on our the advice um, that we're giving. And then, Mvango, um, um, thank you for look, showing us the, the, the sharp end of the, of, of the advice and what is happening. And I think that also helps us to, to retain contact with the, our eventual clients, which is the public uh, in pension funds.